Hello, I am Michael Penny. And I'm Sylvia Penny, and I shall be reading some of the scripture references. And I'm William Henry. Now, in our last podcast, we thought about Jesus' confrontation with the Jewish leadership after he arrived in Jerusalem. But what about the disciples? What was going on with them? Well, uh, Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom of heaven that was going to come upon the earth. He'd been using both, what we shall we say, straight teaching and also parables. The message was that they had to be ready because they didn't know when the Lord was going to return to set up the kingdom and hold them to account for their service. Okay, but but hang on a bit. Um, The fact that he's speaking about coming back to set up the kingdom, that would seem to suggest that it wasn't going to be set up immediately. Exactly. The Lord had been telling them repeatedly that he was first going to be rejected and killed. And then he says it again to the disciples in Matthew 26, verse 2. As you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Interesting that that he links the crucifixion with the Passover. Yes, I think that's very significant. But um, maybe we'll come back to that a bit later. Right, okay. Now, the chief priests were looking for a chance to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction, weren't they? They plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. That's in Matthew 26, verses 4 to 5. Ah, yes, but then they got their big chance when Judas decided to betray Jesus as Luke states in uh, chapter 22, verses 3 to 4. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. He must have been over the moon at that opportunity. Oh, yeah. I think they were over the moon and over the stars, Will. Anyway, the The price they gave him for the betrayal was 30 pieces of silver. But why on earth do you think Judas did it? I don't know. It's hard to say, actually. Lots of suggestions. Some people think that he wanted to force Jesus's hands and make him take arm reaction. Others think he was disheartened that the kingdom had not yet been set up. Or perhaps he was disillusioned with the fact that the Lord seemed to be accepting his faith. The truth is, we don't really know the reason. No, and and maybe he was he was just plain greedy, a lover of money. I mean, for example, when Mary anointed Jesus with the expensive perfume, John's Gospel tells us that it was Judas who complained that it was a waste of money, and he said that the perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. What high moral ground do you think, Will? No, not a bit of it, not at all. Look at what John adds in verse six of chapter twelve. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Well, whatever the reason was, it was a horrific betrayal of someone who had been a close friend of his for three years or more. Yeah, so he's looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. But Jesus went on with the preparations for the Passover. I think that for Jesus, this was such an important Passover. Listen to what he said to his disciples. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. That's in Luke 22, verses 15 to 16. Yes, I, I suppose that's uh, very understandable. For this was to be his final Passover of his earthly life. Yeah, but I think there's more to it than that, actually. Mm. I mean, he wanted to celebrate this Passover because he really wanted to change its meaning for the disciples. He was the Passover lamb, and he wanted his disciples to understand that this sacrifice that they'd celebrated for centuries, it actually all pointed to him. I think that's why he said it would find fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point you make there. But uh, but weren't the preparations for the Passover a little odd? Yeah, they were, weren't they? I mean, Jesus told Peter and John that they were to make preparations for the Passover. But then instead of giving them the address of the house where they were to do it, he gave them a bit of a riddle instead. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? That's in Luke 22, verses 10 to 11. So um, why all this uh, cloak and dagger stuff, do you think? Well, I think the Lord knew that Peter and John were not going to betray him. But if Judas had known in advance where they were going to celebrate the feast, you know, in, in a room in a private house, that would have been a great place for the chief priests to arrest him. So he wanted to make sure that none of the disciples knew where they were going to go. Oh, and that included Judas, who was still there. Yeah, he was still there, all right. I wonder if there was still an opportunity for Judas to change his mind. I sometimes wonder about Judas. You know, it's it's hard to tell the moment that the die was finally cast. Jesus knew who was going to betray him, so he could have denounced him to the other disciples. That's an interesting interaction between them all. John gives us a bit more detail than the other Gospels do. Yeah, that's true. But the first incident that we read about, which took place in the Passover meal, is when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples at the start of John chapter 13. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a really curious incident, isn't it? Mm. At the beginning of the chapter, John gives a kind of summary of what Jesus was thinking. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. That's John 13 verse 1. So Jesus, in full knowledge of who he was and what his destiny was, wanted to do this menial task for his disciples, something the lowest servant would have done. And I suppose he did this in order to show his love for them. What, including Judas? Yes, including Judas. The Lord washed his feet along with the others. It was, it was only Peter who protested. Yeah, but normally your feet would be washed before the meal. John says that Jesus got up while the meal was being served and got a towel and started to wash the disciples' feet. It's as if, well, it's as if something prompted him to do it. Really? Uh, like what? Well, I don't know, but John says that Satan had already prompted Jesus to betray him. And perhaps Jesus realized that and wanted to make sure that he had the chance to show his love to him along with the others. So 
At this point, having been prompted to betray Jesus, I suppose Judas could have backed out? Yeah, well, possibly. You never know. Okay. But um, after washing their feet, Jesus then revealed to the disciples that one of them would betray him. When Peter and John tried to find out who it was, he simply stated that it was one of them. Oh, and it would be the one to whom he gave a choice morsel of bread after dipping it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. That's John 13, verse 26. Yeah, I think that to give somebody a piece of bread like that was a mark of special favour, wasn't it? Yeah, probably, I, I think so. And I suspect that at that point, Jesus and Judas looked at one another eye to eye. Yeah, what a moment. Uh, so what happened then? As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. That's in John 13, verses 27 and 30. It's uh, almost as if Jesus saw Satan entering into Judas, because he dismissed him immediately after that. I suppose Judas had had his last chance to change his mind, but unfortunately he hadn't taken it. In spite of having his feet washed, in spite of receiving the choice, morsel as a mark of favour, he decided to betray him. I suppose that once Satan had entered into Judas, there was really no turning back for him. No, I don't think there was. And you know, I cannot think of anyone else in Scripture where it says Satan entered them. Can you think of any? Ooh. No, not not. Not offhand, I can't. I always think this is such a stark statement in John's Gospel. It's, he says, and it was night. Judas went out into the darkness. He went out in more ways than one, didn't he? Yes, and by, and by contrast, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 came to Jesus out of the darkness. <laughs> That's an interesting comparison, isn't it? Yeah, mm. one goes out into the darkness, one comes in out of the darkness, but... But what about the disciples here? Why do you think they didn't stop Judas from leaving? Because Peter seems to have identified him, or Jesus seems to have identified him to Peter and John. Oh, that's hard to say. I suppose it all happened really quickly. But John does give us a bit of an explanation. No one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Jesus, Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or give something to the poor. That's in John 13, 28 to 29. Yeah, I was just thinking it's a funny time to go shopping, isn't it, in the middle of a meal? Oh, yeah, that's true. But the other Gospels say very little about the Lord's interaction with Judas. When Jesus made the announcement that one of his disciples were going to betray him, all the disciples wondered who it would be. <clears throat> While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. It's in Matthew 26, verse 21. Yeah, and, and even Judas joined in that conversation, didn't he? So I suppose for him it was a bit of play acting. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. 
That's in Matthew 26, verse 25. You know, but again, none of the disciples seem to have picked up that interchange. It must have been a quiet conversation, a personal conversation between Jesus and Judas. Neither Mark nor Luke mentions that conversation. And only John says that Judas left the meeting. Yeah, that's right. It's difficult to tell at what point Judas actually left the meeting. If you look at the institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, it's after they've eaten the bread and after they've drunk the wine that Jesus says this. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. That's in Luke twenty-two twenty-one. I always think it's amazing that Judas was there right up until that point. How on earth could he go through with the betrayal, having sat through that Passover meal? But as we have just said, Satan had entered him. So I suppose from then on, he may have had little control over what he did. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose the betrayal had to happen because it was all part of God's plan. The Lord came to give his life as a ransom for many. So he had to be handed over to the authorities. I suppose that if Jesus had allowed Judas to be exposed, then the others would probably have stopped him from leaving. And then the opportunity would have gone. The Passover would have finished and the Lord would not have been sacrificed. Yeah, that's interesting. Because after all, the Lord was the true Passover lamb. And so he had to be sacrificed at the right time. That's correct, isn't it? So Judas was caught up in something that was much bigger than himself. Oh, that's certainly true. But I suspect he was still accountable for what he did. God allowed Satan to use Judas so that God could accomplish his purposes. But it seems Judas was still responsible for his own actions, as Jesus seems to make clear in Mark fourteen twenty one. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Yeah, it's interesting. God frequently used other nations for his purposes, didn't he? For example, he sent Israel and Judah into exile in Assyria and Babylon. And that was a punishment for their idolatry and their sin. But later on, he punished these nations for their cruelty to his people. Uh, And also we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart a number of times, but then... After that, God hardened Pharaoh's heart not to let the Israelites go free from Egypt. And uh, this was so that God could demonstrate his power both to Israel and to the Egyptians and to all the surrounding nations. Yeah. And Judas, of course, he later regretted what he'd done, didn't he? He tried to return the money to the chief priests, but predictably they weren't interested. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, but I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. That's in Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5. Oh, it's a it's a really tragic ending, don't you think? No, oh, it certainly is. But but coming back to the, the Passover supper, Jesus changed the whole meaning of the feast for the disciples. 
Yeah, yeah, I think he did. And I think the change began when he took the unleavened bread and instead of referring back to the deliverance from Egypt and the old covenant of Exodus 19 verses 5 to 8, he started to refer to the new covenant, as we'll see in a moment. And this is what he said in Luke 22 verse 19. He took the bread, gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So then the, the bread was to signify the Lord's body broken for the disciples. And by eating it, they were kind of taking him into themselves and participating in his death and becoming identified with him in his death. Yeah, yes, I, su I suppose that's the case. But John doesn't describe the institution of the Lord's Supper at all. However, earlier in his gospel, he reports the Lord's teaching on the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It's in John 6, verse 51. So eating this bread, eating the Lord's flesh, gave the disciples a living connection to him. And John goes on to say some more. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in him and I in him. John 6.56 So the disciples were told to do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Of course, way back when Moses instituted the Passover, he told the people that they had to keep this feast as a memorial through all generations. But Jesus was changing the meaning by saying that the disciples were to eat the Passover in remembrance of him, not in remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. Yeah, and the deliverance that was achieved by Jesus's death was much greater than the deliverance of people from Egypt. Christ achieved deliverance from sin and death for people. Yeah, and Paul says this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. 26. Ah, yes, the cup. When Jesus started to speak about the cup, the, the idea of deliverance from sin, I think, comes much more clearly into focus. But there are slight differences in the way Matthew, Mark and Luke describe what Jesus said here. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's in Matthew 26, verses 27 to 28. And then in Mark 14, verses 23 to 24, we read this. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then finally, in Luke 22, verse 20, we have. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, so Luke describes it as the new covenant in my blood. And you know, some manuscripts, some copies of Matthew and Mark also read new covenant, not just covenant. Yeah, it's quite clear that the disciples must have known what Jesus was talking about when he refers to this covenant or new covenant because he doesn't give any explanation of what he means. It's just the new covenant. That's right. 
because they knew that he was referring back to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 32. And this is what we read there. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So what was the difference then between these two covenants? Well, the first covenant, which we mentioned earlier, comes in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 8. It was a covenant of works. The Israelites had to keep the law. The new covenant, on the other hand, was a covenant of grace. God is going to do it all. As we read in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Okay then, so this is a promise that's made to the nation of Israel, both the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the 12 tribes. The Lord is going to put his law into their minds and they will all know him. Their sins are going to be forgiven and the price of that redemption, price of that forgiveness is the pouring out of the blood of the new covenant, which of course is the blood of the Lord Jesus. Yes, it is. In Mark 10.45, as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he pointed out to the disciples the sacrificial nature of his death. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the disciples would have known that that was what he meant. Oh, absolutely. Well, they should have done. That was the whole focus of his ministry, the full fulfillment of the promises made to the patriarchs. You know, Jesus came as the son of David, the rightful king of Israel. The original covenant that God gave to Israel on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments had failed, quite simply because the Israelites couldn't keep its terms. That is, they continually failed to keep the law. And the prophets had foreseen that the Lord would bring in a new covenant sealed by the blood of his servant. And then when this covenant will be implemented, God's law will be written on the hearts of the people and they will all know the Lord. Right. And then Jesus went on to encourage the disciples by anticipating the day when his kingdom would be set up on earth after he returned. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. That's Matthew 26, verse 29. And so that memorable meal ended. And by that time, Judas had gone. Matthew and Mark say that they finished up by singing a hymn together, and then they went out into the Mount of Olives. Luke 22, verse 39 tells it that this was their usual practice. But John gives us slightly more information. When he had finished praying... Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, 
because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. It's in John 18, verses 1 to 2. Yeah, it's a bit strange, isn't it? I mean, Jesus had been very secretive about the location for the Last Supper, but now he led his disciples into the olive grove, you know, that's Gethsemane, and, and they often went there. So Judas knew that they would be there. So Jesus was seemed to be deliberately walking straight into a trap. Yes, I suppose he was. But he knew what he was doing well. The Lord's main priority had been to celebrate this Passover with his disciples because he wanted to give that feast a totally new significance. Now that he had done that, it was time for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. He was ready to offer himself into the hands of the enemies. You know, I think that what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane before Judas arrived with the guard is incredibly poignant. I mean, the Lord went there with the disciples, but at a certain point, he left eight of them behind and he took Peter and James and John, his his closest friends. He took them further into the garden. And Matthew says that he was sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. That's in Matthew 26, verse 38. And from from there, he went on a little bit further into the garden by himself and fell with his face to the ground and began to pray. But it seems the disciples couldn't stay awake. It had been a long evening after a big meal and it had been a very eventful evening. By now, it was probably about midnight. Luke says that the disciples were also exhausted from sorrow. But the Lord is in a, a really stressed frame of mind. If you read all the accounts of it, he needed his closest friends with him at this time. And of course, they, they let him down. And As you read the Gospels, you get the impression that he's totally agitated. He's praying. Then he gets up and he goes back to the disciples. Three times he does this to wake them up and then to tell them off because they kept falling asleep. He's pacing up and down. He's in a real state of torment. Yeah, I think he is. I think you're right there. And uh, Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 44 says this. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Okay, but what was he praying? My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, and yet not I will, but as you will. That's in Matthew 26, verse 39. And then, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And that's in Luke 22, verse 42. Yeah, I think that what lay ahead for Jesus was a horrific ordeal. And the pain of crucifixion was bad enough. Thousands of people endured that. But he was the spotless lamb of God, and he was to bear the sin of the world, the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. And that would involve separation from his father. And that must have been, oh, I don't know, intolerable for him. No wonder he prayed for this cup, the crucifixion, to be taken from him. But in spite of his horror at it and the prospects of what was ahead, he still committed himself to doing the father's will. Yeah. It's interesting that some people don't think the cup referred to here was the crucifixion. Uh, You see, the crucifixion was the whole reason why he came to earth. 
all this ministry was leading up to that point. Do you really think that the Son of God would take fright at the last moment and ask his father to be excused from going to the cross? Well, well, what do you think he meant then? Well, some think that there was something going on in the garden that's not spelled out in the Gospels. It is suggested that Satan was trying to kill him in the garden to prevent him from going to the cross and making the sacrifice for sin. After all, Jesus says his soul was overwhelmed to the point of death. It tells us that his sweat was pouring off him like drops of blood. And what he was praying for was that the Father would save him from Satan's attack and death in the garden. And Luke twenty-two forty-three says an angel came and strengthened him. And Hebrews 5, 7 states that after praying, he was saved from death. Yeah, I can I can see what you're saying, but I don't think there's strong evidence that that was the case. I mean, there's no mention of Satan being in the garden in any of the Gospels. But Jesus in other places describes his sacrifice that's coming as a cup that he had to drink. Remember when James and John asked him to be granted special places on his right and left hand in the kingdom, this is what he said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? That's in Matthew 20, verse 22. So he was referring there to the crucifixion and all the horrors that went with it. So I think that's what he meant in his prayer in Gethsemane. Okay, okay. You you may well be right, but uh, I really can't see the Lord shrinking from the crucifixion. He was always in control of every situation. And after the angel strengthened him, he was physically strong enough to face Judas and his mob. Yes, Judas came up to him and identified him to the soldiers with a kiss. Matthew, Mark and Luke all point out that Judas was one of the twelve. I don't, I don't really think this is to remind us who he was. Oh yes, I remember. I don't think that was the point. He was really trying to emphasise the extent of his betrayal. Oh, that, yes. But uh, John really brings out the extent to which the Lord Jesus was in control of the situation. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's in John 18, verses 46. That's an odd reaction from a group of armed guards faced with one man. Yes, it is, you know, but uh, I am he is the emphatic ego I me in the Greek, I am. And this, this was another one of those I am sayings of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. And I am, of course, was the name by which God introduced himself to Moses. So it must have been really powerful to hear that said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, yes, it was. And, and uh, anyway, don't forget, Will, you've written an excellent little book entitled The I Am Statements of Jesus. It's published by the Open Bible Trust, and I think it's well worth reading. Yeah, well, OK, fine. Um, but let's get back to the Garden. What about the disciples? Peter leaps into action and he attacked Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus, always the healer, stopped Peter doing any more damage and he restored Malchus's ear. However, I think, I think the important thing to remember about this is a point I think we've made it a couple of times, that the Lord knew exactly what he was doing 
on what was going to happen. I mean, listen to what he said to Peter when Peter tried to defend him. Put your sword back into its place, Jesus told him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at disposal 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? See Matthew 26 verses 52 to 54. Yeah, you know, what? I feel quite sorry for the disciples in Gethsemane. I mean, what were they to do if the Lord didn't want them to resist his arrest? Well, what, what could they do? If they hung around, they could be in trouble as well. I suspect they were in danger of arrest themselves. So they all ran for it. Well, no, well, not quite. Not quite. Later, we read that Peter and another unnamed disciple followed Jesus to the high priest's house. Maybe those two, when the others run off, maybe those two hid in the shadows. Yeah, well, maybe, but more or less, I think, more or less, Jesus was all alone. He was arrested and he was taken to the house of the high priest. But I think we better stop there. We'll look at the events leading up to the crucifixion in the next podcast. So thanks very much for listening.